iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and we thank you for joining us for our final regular podcast of the season. Now, you may have noticed that Natalie Sawyer isn't with us today. Uh, Do not be alarmed. She will be back. She's just simply taking a little holiday, as she's entitled to do after a long season. Now, with us in the studio, back from his travels in deepest, darkest Azerbaijan, Mr. James Gearbrandt. And down the line, the one and only, the franchise, Henry Winter. Later on, we'll be looking ahead to the Nations League, which is Gearbrandt's favorite tournament. But let's start with, I don't know if it's my favorite tournament, but certainly a tournament I like a whole heck of a lot more than the Europa League, the Champions League. Liverpool secured their sixth European Cup with a 2-0 win in the All-Premier League final against Tottenham Hotspur in Madrid on Saturday night. Obviously, games get affected by events on the pitch. And that penalty within a minute, I mean, you know, you've just settled down, you're watching. But it was weird because, Henry, I don't know if, if, if you picked up on this when, when, when you were there, but I felt like there was almost no reaction in the ground. It was almost like people were kind of like stunned and, and incredulous that it would have happened so early. You know, normally when we have a handball incident, you get the, you know, the, the, the reaction from the crowd or whatever. And there was almost like silence. It almost felt a little a little surreal. And and I think a big part of the reason why it wasn't a great final was that that early goal kind of really affected both teams. I mean, it was it was a kick in the nuts to Spurs, who spent three weeks thinking about this moment, and they certainly don't visualize this. But I think it probably also affected Liverpool negatively because they didn't play particularly well in the first half either. People were almost like, wait, it started already? Or can we take a mulligan? No, I think Imagine Dragons are slightly to blame, and the Wakefield are slightly to blame, because because the atmosphere all day had been brilliant. Going into the ground had been brilliant. Spurs fans have been saying, you know, Spurs fans were probably outnumbered to be to one in Madrid, but I tell you what, they absolutely held their own in the, in the singing. The atmosphere was just fantastic leading up to it. And then Imagine Dragons, and I, I quite like their stuff, but but time and place, you know, not there, not ten minutes before the kickoff, because it killed the atmosphere. So I think that added. So the, the, the slight flatness. But the, the key thing is, and we're talking to the players in the mix zone afterwards, particularly Harry Winks, who, for someone so young, is just incredibly mature on and off the pitch. And I asked him about the heat. I said, listen, you know, it was pretty hot sort of typing away. What was it like down the pitch? And he said it was pretty oppressive, the heat. It was sort of 30 degrees plus. 
So neither team could play their possession game. I think each player was almost like 800 metres down on the, on their usual sort of running. I think it was the lowest pass completion rate of any Champions League game this season. It was down to 72%. So clearly, I think their nerves played a part as well. I think Liverpool, because of the game management, that cliche that everyone throws around after what happened in Kiev last year, once they got that early goal, they thought, well, let's just control it. And even 15 minutes from time, you could see what Alisson was doing with his goal kicks. You could see James Milner was doing with corner kicks. And we asked him about that. And I said, you know, it's actually quite rare to see an English player being streetwise, almost Uruguayan style. And he was placing the ball for his corner slightly outside the quadrant and the, the lines would bring it back and another 15 seconds would, would melt away. The whole kind of context of this Liverpool season has been that um, in a lot of ways, Klopp has sort of throttled back, you know, in terms, and I think we talked about, you know, the pressing hasn't been as furious. And I think there's sort of been that gradual kind of drift towards doing things in a way that is a bit more sustainable and from a conserving energy point of view as much as anything. I saw a lot of people sort of saying, you know, things to the effect of it wasn't that both sides played poorly. It was simply that Liverpool scored early and Liverpool just a very good defensive team and they defended very well. And I don't know if I would quite agree with that. I, I sort of didn't. I, I didn't think it was a particularly good defensive performance from Liverpool. I mean, they didn't do anything wrong, but there were a couple of situations when Son set up Dele Alli in the first half. There were there were a number of situations there were, where they I actually got I through. I certainly don't think. I, I, I certainly don't think that they controlled the game particularly well. I mean, particularly a period in sort of about the third quarter of the match when actually they were they were actually kind of struggling to yeah. get out a little bit. It was really Tottenham who were sort of doing all the attacking and, and Liverpool didn't really have much of an outlet. So I found it a really strange game to watch. We often forget this, that no matter who's in the ascendancy, football is a, is a fundamentally low-scoring game where individual mistakes make all the difference. You know, I, I felt on what was clearly not Tottenham's day, the fact that at halftime Pochettino could go to his guys and say, listen, we were terrible in the first half. We might have had a a bad decision against us with a Sissoko penalty, but it's only 1-0. We can totally get back into it. I mean, that's a powerful message that, that you can send to your players. And the players, I thought, responded well uh, from, from Spurs' perspective after the break. And look, Pochettino is a fantastic manager and he would have stirred them at halftime just as he'd spoken brilliantly in the build-up, but he made a key mistake and that was starting Kane. And it was, it was very interesting listening to experienced managers. Rafa Benitez talked about it in the Times. Uh, Glenn Hoddle talked about it earlier in the week in the Times that Kane really shouldn't be starting and Pochettino should you know, should give Lucas Moore, obviously that the hat-trick hero from, from Ajax, you know, just unleash him and then maybe bring Kane on later when Son and Lucas Moura have, have used their pace to try and disrupt a, you know, a fantastic Liverpool defence. Kane is such an important individual. He's so powerful within the club, and I'm sure he would have been saying to Pochettino, I'm fit, I'm fit, I'm fit, let me start. In those conditions, and we really can't, you know, let's not forget how hot it was down there. I mean, you know, these are human beings, flesh and blood, you know, bone and sinew, and they, they were exhausted by the oppressive heat. Very difficult to, to play their pressing game. Very difficult for Kane, who's maybe only 80% fit. And you need to be 100% fit to, to, to get anywhere near Virgil van Dijk. So I think the Kane decision, I take your point about Pochettino being fantastic at half-time and he's, you know, he has such sort of emotional energy and the players would have responded to that. But I just think the Kane thing, I actually think Pochettino has probably got off slightly lightly in terms of the criticism. Because look, we all love Poch, he's fantastic and he's great and he very rarely makes mistakes and the semi-finals were great and all that. But Kane was, was a bit of a howler. See, when you hear me make that noise, it's a cue that 
I disagree. I think with hindsight, you can say that. And look, I, I haven't won as many Champions League titles as, as Rafa Benitez, and, and neither has Pochettino, actually. You can turn that argument around and say, you know, if it's going to be a slower-paced game because of the heat or whatever, I want Harry Kane's aerial ability. I want his physical presence to mix it. I can chuck on Lucas Moore at the end when, when the other team's perhaps more tired and his pace can make a difference. You know, it's it's easy from the outside to do it. I, I just find it difficult that a manager, especially a guy like Pochettino, who has not won anything yet, that he would say, you know what, I'm going to leave you out. I'm going to bring you in off the bench. I, I just think it would be such a difficult thing to do. I don't even know that it would necessarily be the right decision because if Harry Kane's out, you're effectively, you know, seeding set pieces to Liverpool. You're becoming more one-dimensional. I don't know. I mean, again, th- this is all allowing for the fact that he actually is fit and he didn't fully look it. There's a difference between medically fit and the ankle ligaments being fine and actually being match sharp. Yeah, I mean, how many times have we gone into tournaments with Wayne Rooney, with David Beckham, and they are medically fit, the metatarsals have healed, whatever the issue was, and then you just see they, they run out of steam. So, and it was interesting, and when the, when the teams came out, I went on a couple of the Spurs fans' websites, and there was a lot of, and you know, they're, they're fairly sort of sensible fans, but they were saying, Kane is a gamble, Kane is a gamble. It was almost like sort of repeated down, but then also, hashtag, in Poch we trust. Right. But, you know, fans were, were, were questioning it. Distinguished managers like Benitez were questioning it. I, personally, I love Poch. I think he's brilliant, but I do think he's got off lightly on, the, on, on a huge call. I can understand the decision to start Kane. What I felt was that I would have liked to see Pochettino change it quicker. I just felt that a half time. Take him off or just yes, change the system? Take him off. Well, kind of both, I guess. I just felt at half time, it was clear that Spurs weren't really attacking well. And I would have liked to have seen him revert to the system that he used in the second half against Ajax of the second leg when Spurs played an absolutely incredible half of attacking football, scored three goals and generated a ton of chances with Llorente playing up front and flanked by Mora and so on. I just felt I would have gone to that sooner rather than he sort of did it piecemeal. I think Lucas came on at about 65 or something, is that right? And then Llorente a few minutes later. I would have just done that maybe at half-time or even or 55 minutes. I just felt in general that I was waiting to see more of a kind of tactical gambit from Poch because we know that he's done that yeah. in sort of games against Liverpool previously. He's... He's kind of thrown in almost a kind of curveball. He's given Jurgen Klopp something to think about. And I, I I kind of missed that from him. I felt he didn't do that. But I suppose from a manager's point of view, finals are different because the nagging thing that you've got in the back of your mind if you're playing in a final is penalties, especially when you're 1-0 down. And, you know, penalties are almost not quite a best-case right, scenario. Right. But, you know, if you are going to win the match, it's a very likely way that you might do it. And, and so I guess maybe that argues for not starting Kane in the first place and having him up your sleeve. I felt it didn't work for Tottenham and I was kind of, I was disappointed for them in a way because I just had the feeling that it felt to me like a game that Tottenham will feel like, oh God, I really want that one back. I wish we could do that one over again. Well, and they created that flurry of chances. That's true, that's true, you're I mean, right. I mean, they weren't, I, yeah, I, I, the second think, half was, was, was okay, I felt. Um, Henry... Big decision, obviously, we touched upon this before, the handball against Musa Sissoko. I know that Lord Sugar isn't familiar with the uh, VAR protocol, but I guess there's two answers to this, Henry. There's the, 
answer was, should that have been a penalty from the way we understood the directives and the rules up until two, three years ago, and should have been a penalty based on what they are now? Well, I think it is a penalty based on the rules now, the laws now, but it won't be a penalty next season. I think some of the confusion that came out is that people were sort of looking for VAR, and the referee... I mean, I think it's probably one of the best referees in the world. And I actually thought, I mean, I, just, I had a few arguments walking out with sort of other journalists. I actually thought he handled the whole thing pretty well, given the sort of, you know, the draining conditions. I thought he kept up with it fantastically. But it was so slightly confusing about, is there VAR? Is there something coming up on the screen? Obviously, they do it differently. And he's got the sort of, you know, the sound in head saying, you know, no, that was, that was all right. And, you know, just, just get on with it. I, I thought it was the right decision. The debate now is, are people going to try and target that? Oh. And it'd be interesting to know whether Mane deliberately targeted his hand or because he wasn't quite sure who he was trying to dig the ball into with that. But I mean, I was just seeing that I was going, well, that's a penalty. I mean, under the current laws. Um, so I was surprised there was such a debate about it. So on on that point, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, people were, I mean, I've heard people say like, well, you know, why didn't he go to VAR? Well, he saw it. He spoke to the VAR officials who described what happened and it was exactly what he saw on the pitch so at that point there's no need for him the decision is made quickly exactly which i think it's great because our concern with var is that it would turn it into sort of american sports and it'd be stop start but actually it was all one fluid motion he pointed to the spot and it had it then confirmed as everyone was getting ready for it and we carried on and there was no break um the thing about the ball hitting his chest and the arm and to avoid misconception they look at whether you gain an advantage of it they still look at where your arm was, whether you were moving towards the ball or not, because you could make the point, potentially, and I'm not saying it's happened here, that a clever player like Sissoko could chest the ball intentionally off his chest and onto his arm and would be gaining advantage, and then it would be a deliberate handball. So I know people will feel differently about it, both the old-timers or whatever, but he was applying the rules as they stand today. I think there are kind of, there are two levels to this debate, aren't there? I think there's is this a penalty under the rules? And then I think there's the second question of, should actions like that be punished that harshly? And I think on point one, I totally agree with Henry and you. This was obviously a penalty under the current laws as they stand, and I didn't I didn't expect anything else when it happened. I'm sort of slightly uncomfortable with the sort of general direction of travel on handball, as we've just saying, football is a very low-scoring game and penalties are absolutely huge in the context of a match. Mm. This is a sort of 0.8, 0.85 XG value, expected goals value chance in what's a very low-scoring game. And this, this match is an absolutely perfect example where you had a penalty given and scored in the second minute of a 2-0 game where the second goal was scored in like the 85th minute or something had an absolutely huge influence on the game, conditioned the game completely. And I think there's a debate to be had over whether something on Sissoko's part, it was sort of, it wasn't a kind of flagrant attempt to stop a cross reaching a player. It was more sort of doziness on his part. It was, you know, stupid for him to have his arm up in that position. But I think there's a debate to be had over whether that should be punished with yeah, I mean, and- a penalty, which is when we're having these sort of debates after matches. And I think, you know, I was on Twitter or wherever and people were saying, you know, well, you know, did it ricochet off his pectoral muscle onto his arm first? And then, you know, Peter Walton on BT was saying, well, no, because his arm actually came down. 
and then someone else said well no but you know it's impossible not for the arm not to come down in that position and I think when we get to the point where we're sort of discussing the biomechanics of the shoulder joint I don't like that I think that's (laughs) you know I think when we're having debates that are sort of that minute I think that's a sign that actually maybe we need to look at penalising offences that are slightly more flagrant than this one was. So, Henry, turning to the managers, one of the previews I wrote was asked to put, like, the worst-case scenario for both managers in, in case they, they lose or lose heavily. And and it struck me that there was no worst-case scenario in the sense that... And I wonder if we've maybe shifted a bit. You know, we all talk about the importance of results and everything. But I felt that if Klopp had lost this game, in the same way that Pochettino has lost this game, it doesn't change their standing or changes their standing very little in the eyes of the ownership, in the eyes of the fans, because of the capital that they've built with their work over the past three or four years, because of the way they carry themselves, because of the way they represent the club, because of the, of, of certainly in Klopp's case, the, the, the season that he had. I wonder, are, are we becoming a little more mature when it comes to looking at managers? And, and this is kind of an unusual situation, right? Where you, you almost have, have nothing at stake in terms of your own job security and your own ability to plan. Uh, well, I don't think we'll ever become particularly mature. I think this is this this is sport. This is the media. This is just high speed emotion. I, I think that I mean, was Van Gaal when he came over here, he, he said, "I've realised one thing about you, the English and the media." He meant the media and the public, the fans. He said that uh, you're more interested in personality than philosophy. You will always look at the the, the individual, and it'll always be an emotional reaction. And I think your, your point about Klopp, I think he would have been damaged by it. I think he would have been seven losing finals people would have made a point about that I don't think there would have been as you say there wouldn't have been question marks in, in Boston there wouldn't have been question marks within Melwood or Anfield because he's you can see what a force he is you know the, the intelligence of man as well as the emotional intelligence and everyone can see the direction of travel but it, 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 it would have been it would have been pretty brutal and I think that's one of the reasons why the outpouring of emotion afterwards, even as, as James rightly says, it wasn't a great final, was because there was an element of relief as, as well as joy. Because seven, seven losing finals would have been quite, <laughs> quite a lot. Um, what about Pochettino? When he's asked about his future, he studiously avoids talking about it, even after the game, right? So before the game, he didn't want to talk about his future because he's focused on the game. Now after the game, he just simply says, this is not the time to talk about it. My reading is that he's doing this because, and I'm being cynical here, he wants guarantees from Daniel Levy about the resources that will be available to him in the summer, both in terms of bringing in new players um, and uh, and extending, you know, Alderweireld and Eriksson if he wants to extend them. It's a little bit of a power play. Obviously, he's been linked to, 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 to Juventus. Am I being too cynical here? Could you have a better reason about why he doesn't go and just knock this on the head the way, say, Pep Guardiola did? No, I think you're 100% right. I think it's pure, well, it's not even mind games. I think it's just a sort of fairly obvious nudge towards Daniel Levy. And look, Levy's the master of these things. Is Levy going to fall for it, though? Because with all, I mean, we love Pochettino, right? But but Levy's the... I mean, it's it's fairly obvious what he's doing. All he's saying, we we can dress it up and, oh, it's a power play between the two of them. But basically what he's saying is completely right, and I'm sure Levy will say it. Um, Listen, we, we need a deeper squad. You know, we've got kids on the bench. You know, if we want to move on, and look, we got to the Champions League final against all odds. We've got this fantastic Uber 
Champions League stadium. But to live at that level and to maintain this direction of travel, we've got to invest. I don't think he's saying it, uh, anything that Levy probably doesn't realise anyway. Uh, And I would be amazed and I would be incredibly disappointed in him as a man as well as a manager if he hot-footed it somewhere else. I also think it's completely the wrong time to be leaving Tottenham Hotspur. What this weekend showed, first by getting to the Champions League final, it shows the sort of resilience of the players and the quality that they have there, which clearly needs enhancing with, 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 with new signings. But it also showed the size of the club. I mean, did you see, how was it, 60,000 people were inside the ground? The fact that whatever, 30,000, 35,000 fans, 20,000 without tickets, Spurs fans, descended on Madrid. I think this showed the world what a big club and how even bigger that they can become. So Pochettino would be would be mad to leave uh, Spurs now, but he needs backing. He's got a fantastic training ground, probably the best in the country. He's got the best stadium in the country. He now needs to take what is a very good squad up into a Champions League winning squad. And Levy clearly needs to do that. But I, go, I don't get the impression that these are two men at war. I think they're two intelligent individuals who both want the best for, for, for the club. And we'll sit down. Also, it, it's not in Levy's mindset to say, even if he did have, say, 150 million available, he's not going to say that because Levy. But I wrote a book with Carrick, and he took me through the negotiations between Levy and David Gill at Manchester United. And Levy was, you know, it's just brilliant the way he played it. He called Manchester United's bluff, and everyone thought the carrot was probably worth maybe eight, nine million, and he kept on pushing it up. And he got 80 million for him. And when Carrick won the FA Cup a couple of years ago, Spurs got a final payment out of Manchester United. What was that? Sort of a decade on. So this man is an absolute sort of genius at negotiating. And if the whole concept and the mood around Tottenham Hotspur is that they haven't got too much money to spend, then that will help Levy when he goes in and negotiates. But you know, he's a really intelligent individual. He wants the best for the club and he will back Pochettino. And I just think it would be crazy if Pochettino walked away anyway. And what, sorry, why Juventus? I mean, Juventus are an amazing club. But why go to Italy at the moment? Oh, I I don't know. I know I know why why Juventus would want Pochettino. I know no idea what Pochettino Absolutely. will do. Um, maybe you take time off and you know wait for Solskjaer to sing. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't want to manage another club in this country and obviously can't go to Barcelona. We need to move on to the Europa League final. Henry, you were there. James, you were there too. You had a bit of a an odyssey getting there. Chelsea won resoundingly in the second half. We've covered all the issues with Baku as a location and whatever else. We had Martin Ziegler telling a story about how local authorities were embarrassed by sort of the, the empty spots in the stands, uh, letting in people for free, locals, without telling UEFA. Was the atmosphere, was it, was it that bad? The atmosphere was strange, to be honest. Um, flat for a, for a final, as I think everyone knows, there were quite a lot of empty seats and that's kind of a bad look for the product. I mean, a, a lot of the time when we talk about UEFA, we talk about UEFA in quite cynical terms, but I think even if you take a quite cynical view of UEFA... It's not good. It's not good. I, I, I think Jeffrey addressed this like in the sense that, I don't know, we'll see if he delivers now, but he certainly, I don't know if you saw the interview, Henry, he, he gave, um, and he's like, look, let's get an airline partner in so that we can guarantee that we can get fans there. As far as sponsors are concerned, I understand that if a sponsor gives me $100 million for a season, and obviously the clubs want the sponsors because the clubs want the money to go back to them, right? They're going to want a bunch of tickets. But maybe we could have something where if you're not going to use those tickets, 
by a certain day, you give them back to me and then we find another way to, to, to allocate them. Because those tickets could have been sold locally in, in Baku and people would have shown up rather than, you know, this freak show, which is also a bit of a security issue too, of just letting random people in just to put bums on seats. So there are different things that could be done. Just a word on Maurizio Sarri, he ends the season third place, losing the League Cup final on penalties to Manchester City, obviously winning the, the Europa League, heavily linked to the Juventus job. If he goes... Can you guys give me somebody who is a realistic option to replace him? Possibly somebody other than Frank Lampard, because that seems to be the only name that we've heard, unless you really think that they have lined Frank Lampard Jr. up. Well, I think it's a year too early for Frank. Yeah, I but I, I, I think I think he, I think he would take it. I just think, particularly with Jody Morris and his knowledge and the and the transfer ban and the need for academy, I think he possibly would. Right. I, I think he would because, again, coming back to the point about Pochettino, I mean, they, they, these are not normal individuals. These, you know, they will back themselves in a situation like that. He knows the fans will give him a chance. I think the, the, the point about why Sari has to go is that he completely misread the mood. I mean, look, he's a good coach and his achievements, but you've got to have an emotional empathy with fans in England. And I'm going, my God, this is like another, it's like Rafa like this situation. <laughs> it's, it's kind of the total polar opposite to Pochettino and Klopp, where they have such empathy with the supporters. And and he doesn't. With Sarri, I just think we should take a moment just to say, this is absolutely wild what has happened to Maurizio Sarri in the last three months. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, literally in, I think, mid-March, there was that Cardiff game where Chelsea won very luckily on a sort of offside. Yeah. And people were literally chanting, I mean, they were chanting the extremely rude chant about Sarri ball. Let's dial it back to mid-February when they lost 2-0 to United in the Cup and that was when they first had the chance of Sarri ball and Matt Hughes, our colleague who's very well connected at Chelsea, says that had Chelsea lost the subsequent game, which was a Premier League game against Tottenham Hotspur, Sarri would have been sacked at that point and had that happened... Steve Holland would have come in, I presume. An interim coach would have come in and I think Sarri's reputation would have really been diminished by this spell at Chelsea. They win that game, they win enough of their like last 20 games of the season in all competitions to finish third in the Premier League and, and win the Europa League and suddenly Sarri is walking into one of the top jobs in club football I just think it's I just think it's a, a kind of amazing reversal of fortune for him The train is now approaching Junction at platform Passengers Airport please stay on board Next stop Road Station iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We need to move on to the Nations League. Henry, I'm going to start with you because just for context... England haven't won major silverware in international football, as most people know, in nearly 53 years. Would this count, in your mind, as major silverware? I would sort of bill it, um, just maybe one rung above the tournoi. Really? I think that, yeah, I do. Yeah, look, it's... And I will not be changing the title of whatever it was, 50 years of hurt, <laughs> that that is officially ended. And to be fair, Sir Southgate, and I take my lead in most things in life from Gareth Southgate, and I think he said that um, it's obviously not on a par with the European Championship, and it's particularly not on a par with, with the World Cup. But absolutely, I think if, if they went and won it, and I think their, their favourite status from probably a couple of months ago has been slightly diminished, given the quality that we've seen of the Dutch players and the fact that England are going to be missing a few players and will Harry Kane start? So I think that um, it will be fantastic. But is it an arise to Gareth? I don't know. I think that I, might come in a year's time after Euro 2020. Look, I'm, I'm going to be contrarian on this for a change. I think this will in some ways be a bigger feat than other Euros or World Cups because England had to go home and away against Croatia, who were runners-up in the World Cup, against Spain, who obviously had a had a poor World Cup, but are still a legitimate powerhouse in, in world football. And, and then to get there, they will have had to beat Switzerland, who I know we can all giggle at, but are all, always seem to be in the, in the top 10. Portugal, who are the hosts and have Cristiano Ronaldo and are the reigning European champions. Or Holland, who obviously didn't qualified World, World Cup for the past World Cups, but obviously have a resurgent team. Came through a group with France and came through and with France and Germany. So when you compare it to what people have achieved, when you compare it to who Croatia beat, for example, to get to the World Cup final, why does this pale by comparison? I, I totally agree with that. And I would disagree with Henry. I, I Henry is right in the sense that this is not the World Cup and it's probably, for now at least, going to be regarded as being a slightly lesser title than the European Championship. But it's fairly clearly the third biggest thing that England could win. I don't think it's that far behind either. I mean, this is a proper UEFA competition. And the games are competitive. The games are competitive. All the kind of major international, European international teams played first choice lineups throughout the group stage. And I think also, I think because it's the first one, it's hard to assess kind of historically what it might mean. But if you look back, I think, at, you know, for example, the first European Championship, I don't think that was sort of a huge deal immediately. Right. I don't think people at the time sort of considered that a sort of enormous thing. But of course, now it has become that. If the Nations League continues, I don't see any reason why were England to win it this year, that would not, in hindsight, be considered a big deal. The whole point is, and it's why the Champions League is, is so important, and why the Euro- European Championships and why the, the World Cup, 
particularly is so important, is because of this build-up of history. Just because it's, look, we can all see the competitive element of it, and I think it's completely, you know, obviously it's completely killed friendlies. More players are reporting for duty because they know you're going to have to hit the ground running because there's some serious games we played from the start of the Nations League. But this is its first event. It may well go on, but you, you cannot consider it a hugely important competition for another sort of 10 years or so. And the, the celebrations, I, I have to say, I'll be saying, listen, this is absolutely fantastic, and this is a good warm-up for the European Championships next summer, where the country will be truly going crazy, partly because the games are on at home soil, but because it's the European Championships. You know, this is a this is a new competition that's just come along, and we have to respect the European Championships. We have to respect the World Cup. So, Gab, look, I love you to bits, but the fact that, that you could even have it in the same gulp of air when you're talking about the World Cup, I think it's just is wrong and disrespectful. And it's, it, it's fantastic. And look, fair play to UEFA. It's a tournament that's worked. It's given a real edge this summer. And England know they've got to absolutely go for it. But it's, I'm sorry, it is still in the shadow of two great competitions. One fantastic competition in terms of the European Championships and one truly stellar, the most important event in the world, bigger than the Olympics, bigger than Eurovision, bigger than whatever you want to throw against it. I'm sorry, there's absolutely no comparison. It's like the new kid on the block very promising, a nice new boy band, nice and shiny, but it ain't the Beatles <laughs> and it ain't the Stones. Uh, hard to argue with that. What about, I, I'm going to take one last run of this. What about as a gauge, again, assuming England win it and I have a long way to go to do that. I have two games, but against uh, tough opponents. But what about as a gauge of how good England actually are? Um, and the reason... I bring this up is that I think that often matters too. You know, knockout tournaments, we know we get screwy results. Things go things go one way or another. But here, they will have had to get through some some big countries. And just for context, let's leave the World Cup on one side. If you compare it to the Euros, in 2016, Portugal had a rough ride in the group stage. They finished behind Hungary, that's right. <laughs> the, the, the nil-nil board draw, and then they beat Croatia in extra time. They beat Poland on penalties. They beat Wales in the semifinal. And then in the final, they beat France in extra time. Certainly as a run, those seven games versus the six games that England or, or Holland, if they win it, certainly the latter is a tougher run, right? So maybe th- does that tell us a little more about the actual quality of the team? You've got to qualify for the European Championship. So it's a bit unfair just to say seven versus six. Um, yeah, look, as an intense competition, I think it's been fantastic. And I think that England's performance in, in Spain was, was magnificent. You could see the way that Eric Dyer went in on his challenge on Sergio Ramos early on in Seville, just sort of set the tone and it showed how up England were for it. But look, a lot of England fans are going out there, but I don't think they're going to be following it with the same fervour. I don't think we're going to get a huge range of England Nations League 2019 merchandise <laughs> um, tea towels and cups and calendars for that. I don't think we'll get necessarily a slew of honours from the Queen or whoever the Prime Minister is that week. Look, I don't want to ruin your party, Gab, and it is fantastic and fair play to, 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 to UEFA, but I'm sorry, my adrenaline will really kick in at the Euros next summer. Right, you get the final say on this, James, and you've got a different question. Um, how do you see the tournament panning out? Give us a prediction. What do you expect from it? I think England have a great chance. I mean, England 
maybe will be slightly compromised by having had a few players in the Champions League final. I think England are playing much better football and are in a much are actually a much better team than they were last summer when they reached the World Cup semi-finals. I think they're much much better in this 4-3-3 that they're playing. I guess the starting wingers maybe Sterling and Sancho is that is that fair? And I think that's pretty good. I think that's that's a pretty exciting combination. Um I think England have a great great chance. I think of the four teams Switzerland are probably the weakest. I think Holland look really, really good again under Ronald Koeman, and I think just have a really good first eleven um, and an incredibly strong spine of you know Van Dijk, De Ligt, Vinaldum, Frankie De Jong, and you know some good attacking players like like Memphis Depay as well. And Portugal, I guess, I think as an you know there's maybe an argument that Portugal should be regarded as favourites on on sort of you know grounds of I guess pedigree and, and stuff like that. And and Cristiano Ronaldo. Cristiano Ronaldo, Bernardo Silva. Portugal, I think, have a big weakness at centre-back. Um, that, and I think were it to be an England v Portugal final, obviously we're getting ahead of ourselves, I think England could go into that with, with a lot of confidence that they could hurt that Portugal defence. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, actually, many... actually, Gab, sorry, that's not, all we, uh, that's not all we have time for. This is uh, producer Charlie here. How are you doing? Hey, Charlie. Hey, um, I think you were possibly about to say that this is your last podcast today, weren't you? Uh, yes. Something along those lines, yeah. How long have you been doing the podcast for? Uh, goodness, 16 years. Wow. That. Gearbrand wasn't even born. <laughs> That's when it a lot of producers. <laughs> yes, a lot of producers. Yeah, um, not just me. No, we had the excellent Dave McGuire. Yeah. The grumpy Scott Tom Wright. Skinner. Skinner. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure that um, Henry will have his say in a, in a moment, but there's uh, various other people that wanted to have their say, starting, I think, with, well, present company excluded, probably your favourite writer for The Times. Ooh, George Culkin. Hi, this is George with a message for Gab, just to say congratulations and thank you uh, for all your brilliant work for the paper and the podcast over the years. And a big thank you to say, really appreciate all your support and generosity as a colleague. It's meant a huge amount. And thirdly, to say you will be sorely missed, but huge good luck in what you do next. And lots of love from the beautiful Northeast and take great care. Hi, Diab. It's Rory. We used to work together. You may or may not remember. I'm not sure. I was really sad to hear that you're not going to be hosting the game anymore. You are a, a still a regular presence in my ears, uh, even though you don't know it, as I, um, as I walked the dog. You were a really, really fun way to spend a Monday morning for about five years trying to work out a way to win an argument with you. I don't think I ever succeeded, uh, but it was good practice and it made everyone else seem a little bit easier. But yeah, it's sad. You're a really good host and you're a really annoying person to have a conversation with because you always win. Bye. Hi, Gab. It's Matt Dickinson. And I guess at the times we all feel a little like Chelsea fans waving goodbye to Eden Hazard. Really sorry to see you go, but also glad to have had a man of your talents for so long. I'm sure we've disagreed over many things on the podcast down the years. I was always right, by the way. Uh, but I'll obviously miss your enthusiasm, your knowledge, your passion, uh, and even you mistaking Barnes for Mortlake. Um, so all the best for the future, and uh, see you at a game soon. Hi, Gab. This is uh, Ali Rudd. I feel I need to tell game podcast fans that you really are as bonkers as you sometimes sound 
You don't need much sleep. You can watch three games at once. You have an encyclopedic grasp of elite football worldwide and have never knowingly not held a polarising opinion. But I must reluctantly point out you are also rather sweet. Once thoughtfully decorating a bottle of champagne for me with images of Brendan Rogers. The game podcast will continue to be fun, but it won't be the same. Hi Gab, it's Stuart Robson here. The biggest tribute I can pay to you is that whenever I came onto your show, I knew I had to do more research than on any other show that I went on. That's mainly due because I knew you'd know about every topic that we were going to be discussing. I also knew that you've got unbelievable inside information around footballers and football clubs and managers. And I also knew that you watch numerous games over any given weekend. You're a magnificent pundit and presenter, and it was always a pleasure working with you on the game podcast. Hi, Gab. Uh, this is Julien, Julien Laurence. Uh, I just wanted to say how much I've enjoyed doing this podcast with you. All good things uh, come to an end at some point, but we had so much good time, great fun. My highlight has to be when Steve Parrish called the start on Twitter after listening to one of the pods where we slaughtered him and, his, uh, and the way he was uh, dealing with his club. That was hilarious. So... Good luck for what's coming next, and thanks again for having me so often on the pod. Take care. Welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. Joining me from down the line in beautiful Rippendon in his conservatory is Ollie Kay. Morning, Gab. How are you? I'm great, Ollie. And you know what I find really weird? Saturday's Champions League final... You have Fabinho, you have Allison, you have that dude, Joe Gomez, you have that freak Harry Winks. Gab, I just can't do this anymore. Um, Gab, I can't believe you're leaving. It's um, end of an era, very tearful, even right here in the conservatory in Rippenden. But it's been an absolute pleasure working with you, and um, I look forward to seeing you lots and lots more now, I should think. You'll be badly missed in the paper, you'll be badly missed... For the podcast in particular, I think. But um, yeah, it's been fantastic working with you and look forward to seeing you around. Well, I'm, 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 I'm very touched. Very fortunate to have had this opportunity way back when. I need to give a shout out to Simon Cooper, who was the European football correspondent before me. And when uh, he had to leave, he put me forward to Keith Blackmore, who was the sports editor at the time. And that's where it all began. And there's way too many people to thank, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that here. Um, but it's been it's been an absolute privilege to do this. And thank you for listening. And and and, and please continue to uh, uh, to support our, our our journalism and and our great writing that we have here at the Times, and that we're privileged to be a part of. A, a personal thanks, obviously. Well, I really thank the, all the other producers. Should probably thank Charlie as well, and should probably also thank his boss, David Jordan, who's from Newcastle and decided to sneak in and eavesdrop. So, because he's here, I need to thank him as well. Thank you to my guests today, uh, James Gearbrandt and uh, and Henry Winter, a man who I'm really privileged to say that I've known for a very long time. I think in this case, realistically, probably longer than uh, than Gearbrandt has been alive. I can't believe that we're losing the gift of the gab. Because whenever I go to the games, fans come up and they say, oh, you're on that Times podcast. What's Gab Marcotti like? And they, they absolutely love you. You're more than a brand. You're more than a character. Your knowledge of the game surpasses anyone. Stuart Robson's right. You absolutely have to do your research. To, even to stay 
hanging on to your coattails in any debate, Gab. And not only do you know the game inside out, not only are you respected by every journalist, by every player, by every coach and by every fan, you're also a fantastic bloke too. So wherever you're going off to in the future, we're really, really going to miss you, mate. Thank you, Henry. Um, means a lot coming coming from you. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's just one pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. And as one competition ends, another one begins. Join Natalie Sawyer and special guests, including former England player Claire Rafferty on Thursday as they preview the Women's World Cup. And in fact, Natalie, Claire and our leading writers, including the very talented Molly Hudson, will then be coming to you twice a week throughout the tournament with the best analysis as Phil Neville's Lionesses chase glory in France. For me, it's been a privilege and yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you all these years. And I'll just, I feel like if I keep babbling uh, to prolong the moment, um, then that'll ruin my goodbye. So I'm just going to say over and out. Thank you. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.